0: Well, our summer psalm today is Psalm 50. So make your way over to Psalm 50 so you can follow along this morning. Now, the author of this psalm is a guy named uh, Asaph. He wrote, or at least he's uh, attributed his name to 12 of the psalms in there. And Asaph was a Levite, a priest, and that that led musical worship in the in the temple. Um, so, this psalm is, is unique in, in one way, uh, at least, because as you've probably noticed our, as we work our way through the psalms or reading them on your own or, or something of that nature, right, that most psalms are these prayers to God or these prayers uh, about God, but, but not Psalm 50. Uh, psalm 50, as we read it, I, I think you'll agree that it, it seems like it would fit better in the book of Isaiah, somewhere in the. You know, a book of prophecy because it is a prophecy, right? There, there's these quotes from the Lord, from God speaking directly in the first person to humanity, to His covenant community, His covenant people, um, and, and so it's this prophecy. It, it paints this this picture, in, in fact, of a, a trial where where God brings these charges against all who are in covenant with Him because they are, and, and maybe we also believe that our, our worship of God. Can, can be merely outwardly, can be merely words, can be this half-hearted thing. Now, it's 23 verses, but we're going to go ahead and read all of them at once in its entirety, and, and then we'll get into it and um, look at it in more detail. And, and hopefully our, our, our prayer, our, our expectation is the Lord will, will change us and encourage us, build us up as His people uh, this morning. So, Psalm 50, <clears throat> beginning in verse 1. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, he does not keep silent. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with um, a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you, I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and perform your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says... What right have you to recite my statutes or to take my covenant on your lips, for you hate my discipline, and you cast my words behind you? If I see a thief, if you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers, you give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. you sit and speak against your brother, you slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent, you thought that I was. One like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this, then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let us pray. Almighty God, your word is glorious and we desire to understand it. And so we are asking you this morning that you would enlighten our minds and silence all the mental distractions that come into our minds. Lord, make us to be present here in this moment. Give us conviction where conviction is right and stir up our love for your word, for your ways, for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you will, the the first two verses we see here is kind of like the narrator of the story that speaks to begin with, Uh, and he begins with three divine names of God, El, uh, meaning the Mighty One, Elohim, these are Hebrew, translated simply God, And, and Yahweh, God's covenant name, which we recognize, why? Because in our Bibles, in English, what's it look like? It's all capital letters, Lord, right? these three divine names of the Lord together. And then the narrator tells us that, that God speaks and is calling all the earth, everywhere the sun shines, uh, to gather together his people, or all people. And then he tells us that, that God, who is the per- perfection of beauty, that God shines forth out of Zion. And, and why Zion? Right? That's the location of the temple in, in Jerusalem. That's where, you know, in, in the Old Testament, where God made his, his presence most known among his people on the earth. And then in verses 3 and 4 are, are like this this royal her- herald that comes, right, announcing the arrival of, of the mighty king, right? You might hear the big trumpet. It's not here, but that kind of idea. Get everyone's attention. attention. And, the, and the herald tells us that God comes to judge his people. The, the herald cries out, saying, God does not keep silence. The Lord will speak. And so our attention is drawn to that. What will he say? And even before we hear those words, right, the the herald continues to to draw our attention with this mental image of God's approach. Uh, Before God is this devouring fire, right, around him is a tempest. Do you know what a tempest is? It's a, a windy, violent storm. And so can you, can you picture this arrival, right? The flames everywhere and a storm with lightning and thunder blowing across this desert like, you, like maybe you've seen a storm from a distance, but add fire to that, right? I, I imagine if any of us were to witness this, this arrival, uh, we, we would be like Isaiah that we, we said earlier, right? We'd think, woe is me. I think for honest, fearfully, we'd probably need to change our pants later. It would be one of the more terrifying things you've ever seen in your life. And, and we know this, right? We we know from you know in Deuteronomy 4.24 that our God is a consuming fire, a jealous God, and, and He's showing up at this time for judgment. And the Holy One, God, comes to judge. And, and his first words that we see there, right, in first in five. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. You see, a divine covenant is an an oath bound promise that that God establishes that is sealed in the the blood of a sacrifice. And in verse 5 here is this, this reference to the covenant that God made through Moses. You probably hear it called the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, listen to what God says here in Exodus 19, 5 and 6. He says, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples uh, from all the earth. Uh, you're mine. You see, this this covenant was confirmed by blood. There is an animal sacrifice and and for us, we think, well, that's gross. It doesn't make it much sense. But, but that's the way these, these covenants were ratified, were, were sealed. And in fact, in, in Moses, uh, sorry, Moses in Exodus 24 takes the animal blood that from the sacrifice and, and he actually throws it all over the people, which is incredibly gross, right? The Israelites. But it's to signify, it's to symbolize that their, their sins have been forgiven by the blood that has been shed here. And God would continue to require more sacrifices later. And so when, when Israel obeyed the requirements of God's covenant, there were to be blessings, and when they disobeyed, disobeyed there were to be curses, consequences, if you will. You, you, you can hear this as, uh, as the Lord speaks in Deuteronomy 30, 15 through 18. Listen to this. He says, I, I've set before you life and good, <clears throat> death and evil. If you obey my commandments The commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are taking possession of. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods, to serve them, I declare to you that you shall surely perish. And in Deuteronomy 30 verse 19 right, the very next verse from what I just read to you in Deuteronomy, um, it, right, it's, it's significant because it's exactly what we just see in verse 4 of our passage today, this idea of these witnesses coming, right? He says, I, I, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse, and those witnesses are being called back now. And so God now summons his people to be judged according to the conditions of the covenants, and God Himself, who is righteous, in verse six says that, you know, in case you're you're questioning, is this a righteous judge? Yes, because the Lord Himself will be the judge. Right? Now, the Apostle Peter says something similar in First Peter four seventeen, and he says this: For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And, and I say this so you understand this, church. Remember, this is not just anthropology. It's not just studying, you know, the Israelites, God's people way back then. These, these words are, are for us to consider, right? To consider our own hearts as, as we hear these words. As we consider, you know, the, the judgments of, of the Lord. What, what would he have to say or what does he have to say to us here? And and then verse 6 ends with that term Selah. You saw that. You noticed that maybe I I didn't read it. Most believe it's a word that's not meant to be spoken. But the idea is there's a a pause in what's going on. And and it's a pause so you can think about what's been said. So you can prepare for what's coming next. And before the Lord testifies against his people, in verses 7 through 15, he reminds us one more time, I am God. Your God. See, the, the heart of this section is God clarifying for them the, the point of his, his requiring sacrifices. And I hope you'll see that here in a bit. Um, but, but you kind of need to understand that in the ancient Near East... Uh, that, that region, right? All the nations had gods, lowercase gods. They were uh, idols that they worshipped, but they, you know, gods in, in that sense. And in, in every instance there, their gods needed animal sacrifices for food. The idea was, if we don't bring them these sacrifices, if we don't provide for God, then, then he's going to become weak. He won't be able to do things for us. Uh, that, that kind of thing. Our God might die because he doesn't get enough sacrifices. But But God, capital G, the God of Israel, our God, is is not like those other lowercase g gods. He says here that he doesn't eat those sacrifices, right? He's making this clear, I'm I'm God, I am self sovereignly self-sustained. He's making this declaration, I I am not a man-dependent idol like like those other gods of the other nations. And God adds here that, that even if he did need to eat, he wouldn't need their sacrifices because everything in all of creation already belongs to him. Right, God is saying that all the bulls, the goats, the birds, the cattle on a thousand hills, right, all the cattle, everything you could possibly sacrifice to God already belongs to Him. It's already His. I mean, can you uh, imagine, right, a young child going and and opening the fridge and digging through it and pulling out uh, potato salad, and of course it'd be mustard potato salad, because that's the only kind worth eating, Uh, But but can you imagine her her bringing this to her parents, uh, you know, her mother and her father, and handing in this tub of potato salad and and, and saying, I I, I got you this, this food I I have provided for you. Right? Come on. They already owned that potato salad. You're just handing over something that's already there. And, And that's kind of the point here. Anything we bring to the Lord, it's already the Lord. In a sense, God's saying here, right? It also just, sacrifices? I don't need your sacrifices. That's not what this is about at all. And the Lord's making clear here, yes, you've, you've made sacrifices. Technically, you've done that. So again, that's not the issue here. Don't think it is. And, and that raises the question, then, what is the issue here? You see, the, the charge here is, is what we might call empty formalism or, or heartless worship, right? Uh, Derek Kidner says it, says it this way. He says it's uh, nominally orthodox and mechanically pious. They're going through the motions of, of worship when they are making this sacrifice, these sacrifices. Their, their hearts are so far from God, and yet they're technically doing what they're supposed to do. Now Now, keep in mind, ritual is is not in and of itself a bad thing that's not what god is condemning here he doesn't rebuke them for offering sacrifices in fact they are supposed to offer the sacrifices they are supposed to keep up this ritual right now you know this already but but formalism heartless worship is is still a problem today for for god's covenant people for the church In fact, you and I may may be committing this this act of empty formalism against the Lord on a regular basis. Maybe you you come to worship, right? You're here. Maybe you support the church financially. You you volunteer your time. You use your your gifts and ability in the service of the Lord that way. But you're, you're mentally, emotionally, spiritually just not present. There's no love for God in your worship. No awe, no gratitude in, in your heart to the Lord. You, you ever met with a, a friend for lunch or coffee or something and you sit across the table from them and you think I have, I've been so excited for this meeting you know I've had so much I've been wanting to say to them and talk to them and, and then you find they, they get out their phone and they're texting someone and like just a minute sorry I gotta handle this and, and you know like maybe they're checking Instagram I don't know but you realize they're not present here. Their body is there right? You can touch them, uh, but they're just not really totally present with you. We can show up at worship and, and treat God that way. Never even acknowledge how glorious and gracious He is and that He is for us. Never really engage in, in worship for Him. As uh, Ross King, a singer we enjoy, sang many years ago, he said, because you can sing all you want to and still get it wrong, Worship is more than a song. See, if, if we simply think, or if we think that our, our simply showing up to church, that that's a gift to God, we are mistaken. Now, don't, don't hear this wrong. It is good that you show up to worship. We, we should, but it's not a gift to God. That we, we can gather as God's people and worship Him. It is a gift not to God. It is a gift of God to us. Another way that we can fall into to, Empty formalism today is if we believe simply that we're, we're right with God because we receive the sacrament of baptism, Lord's Supper, or, or maybe be, you know, we, we find ourselves in an empty formalism when we are unconcerned about our apathy towards God today simply because we, we prayed a, a prayer uh, for salvation many years ago. It's just this disconnectedness. You, you see, empty formalism in our worship endangers our souls because it promotes this false relationship with our Lord. And so the solution here, and hear me here, hear me here, the solution isn't to do less than coming to corporate worship on Sunday mornings. It's, it's not, you know what, I, I guess I'll stop going to worship because, you know, it's, it's just been this dead formalism. I'm not doing much here uh, emotionally. I'm, I'm not feeling right. The, the answer is not that you just stop going. God doesn't tell the Israelites, you know what? You might as well stop the sacrifices. That'll fix it. That's not the solution. The, the solution for their empty formalism and sacrifices and, and our maybe empty worship and worship is to offer to the Lord our hearts filled with thanks, thankfulness for all that God is, And again, all that He's done for us, all, all who He is. The, the solution is to worship God rightly with, with all our being. Fellow PCA pastor Richard Phillips put this beautifully when he says this. He says, we we truly worship God only when we offer him genuine thanksgiving and love in response to his grace. That's how God says it in verse 14 there before you, right? Look at it. Verse 14, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Uh, Now this is not saying here offer thanksgiving instead of animal sacrifices but along with your sacrifice bring the, uh, the sacrifice of a thankful heart. Christian, gratitude for God's saving grace is at the heart of all true religion. God also graciously says here in verse 14 perform your vows to the most high that's a a call to live in sincere obedience to to God's ways and and, and this section here ends right in in verse 15 with with this gracious invitation of the Lord look at it listen to this He, he says call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me and in other words you who have fallen into formalism I am still your God Return to me with, with all your heart, right? God is God is for you. He longs to be for you, and, and so then if, if God needed animal sacrifices or didn't need animal sacrifices, why did He require him? You ever wonder that? Okay, you don't need him for food. The whole point of animal sacrifices isn't just that we do it right heartlessly, you know, uh, as formalism. Then what's the point of it at all? I'll give you two reasons. The first reason is that it teaches us that a, a, a blood atonement, a sacrifice, is necessary for the forgiveness of sin. Right? It's, it's setting this up. God's preparing us for what Jesus will do to redeem us from our sin. The, the, the second thing is, is this. Animal sacrifices were, we're never about what we, we can give to God. Right? Their whole point was that they, they showed what God had given to, has given to his people so that our sins could be forgiven. Right? They, they teach us that, that God provides for us the sacrifice. They think back to Genesis 22. Those of you who are familiar with it, right? God calls Abraham, and uh, you know, sacrifice your son Isaac. And he goes out, and he builds the place for the sacrifice. And he's got the knife raised up, and he's just about to do it because he's he's being obedient to the Lord. And, and right at that moment, he stopped, right before he brings that knife down on Isaac. He God sovereignly, right at this moment, causes this ram to be caught by its horns in the in the thicket. Uh, God provides the sacrifice that is needed there. And the, the rest of the stories in the Old Testament, right, aren't as interesting, if we're honest. They, they just, they don't excite us. We don't put them in, in children's books. But when God provides skills and, and, and work and money and, you know, that are to be used to buy these animals, to make sacrifices, right, um, it's, it's not exciting. But that is, it's absolutely true that in that situation, God is also providing for us every animal, right, every animal that's ever been sacrificed to the Lord, He also provided, he did. The Lord provides. And all this pointed to the Lord providing the one true sacrifice, the, the Lamb of God, our, our Lord Jesus, who upon the cross was and is the only perfect blood atonement for our sin. God provides what God requires. I, I feel like we could stop right here, um, but there is another issue that God's confronting his people with in Psalm 50. Right, so here this part we just looked at, God corrects the, the worship of those who were practicing empty formalism. But here in verses 16 through 21, God more strongly condemns those who are being hypocrites by claiming that uh, to be his you know, claiming to be his people while at the exact same time willfully practicing evil. Now now this is not a, a single listen, not a single individual among us. Or or on this planet for that matter, It, it lives perfectly consistent to God's word no matter how much you desire to at moments right we don't live consistently uh, and in that sense you might say there's some hypocrisy right but on uh, on some level we 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 fail to live out what we biblically believe we we actively do sin against god who we claim to love and 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 that sort of hypocrisy is is not what this strong rebuke of the lord is about here that's not the sort that he's condemning here the lord is here condemning those who intentionally who openly who willingly who confidently, without remorse, without contrite hearts, disregard God's moral commands. Listen, he's not talking to the Babylonians or the Amorites here. He's talking to those who know God's commands because they are God's covenant people. In modern times, those are those who claim faith in Christ, those who claim to be Christians, right? God says they have no right to claim to keep the covenant with their mouths because as verse 17 here says you hate discipline you, you cast my words behind you right they, they, they thoughtlessly just take God's word and just toss it over their shoulder like it's a, a used banana peel or a beer can that's empty right they, they have no regard for it at all there's a, a theological term to describe those who relate to God in this manner, and the term is antinomianism, which, which literally means anti-the law or against the law. It's, it's this erroneous idea that Jesus can be your Savior while you absolutely reject him as, as Lord, as any authority over your life. In other words, it falsely teaches that, that you can rest in the grace of God even if you have zero regard for God himself or his commands. an age-old heresy, and it leads to people willingly, unrepentantly sinning without regard. When when Laura and I were at Texas A&M, we we went to this non-denominational church uh, where the pastor was this direct descendant of Jonathan Edwards, uh, amazing preacher, absolutely gifted, loved to to listen to him preach. But then near the end of our time there, he began to embrace this antinomianism theology, and, and we could hear it in his preaching and, and, and sadly we, we were not surprised to later learn that at the same time that he started changing into this theology that, that he was having an affair. And, and the worst of it all was when he was called to repentance for that affair and instead of, instead of repentance he, he left his wife, he left his family, he left the ministry. And again, all Christians sin. You and me, we actually sin. But the distinction of, of this antinomianism is, is willfully sinning, willfully disobeying God. No conviction, no repentance, no concern whatsoever because, ah, it's forgiven by grace, right? It's already paid for, so who cares? And then in verses 18 to 20, God condemns them for being pleased with the thief, for extending a, a friendship deep friendship with those who practice, practice adultery and who do all sorts of evil by the words of their mouth, even to the point of slandering their own biological brother, their own brother, right? The, the, these three things here are actually the seventh, eighth, and ninth commandments, not in order, but, uh, and they serve as a sort of shorthand for, for all ten of them. In other words, God's giving examples of what he's already stated, that you cast my words behind you. You don't even care. And this section ends in verse 21 with God saying, these things you have done and, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourselves. In other words, God's, God's saying, you, you hypocrites think you've, because you've willfully, rebelliously committed sin and, and yet you have faced no consequences for this sin because of my silence in that regard. You, you think that I am like you, that I can't or I, I won't do anything about it. But look at the last line in verse 21. God says, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Remember, God will not be silent. God won't remain silent forever. The judgment of our fearfully holy God is a very real thing. Now, the, before we move on, I, I do want to bring this a little closer to our life today because I, I would expect that when we think about this, if you're anything like me and you start talking about hypocrisy, your mind thinks, oh, I know someone like that. I've seen their hypocrisy. But, but none of us really ever consider ourselves to be truly hypocrites. And, and so how do we know if we're living as a hypocrite? And, and, and I'd say look back at verse 17. That's a real, real clear indicator right here. Y- you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you does that describe how you relate to God's word? H- how do you respond to scriptural commands of, of the Lord, right? How do you respond when the scriptures reveal that you're in sin and, and correction in that regard? Because the hypocrite is just going to disregard it, going to make excuses about why it's no big deal, about, eh, uh, right? What? the true believer will submit to God's word, even if at times that is lived out inconsistently. As, as James Montgomery Boyce says here, he says it's possible for Christians to sin. They do sin, but it's not possible for them to be hypocrites like this. If they are not intending to do the right thing and wanting to do the right thing, as defined by the moral law of God, they are not Christians. Any more than the wicked people of psalm were truly God's people. That's some heavy stuff. And the final two verses here bring both warning and, and hope. Encouragement, I think. God says first in verse 22, Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver you. Wow. Did you hear the weight of that? In no uncertain terms, our our Lord condemns wicked, wicked men and women who speak praise to God with their lips while they bow down to and just love sin. He says, for those who continue to forget God, there is no hope of redemption. There's no one to save you. Because if it ain't God, it's nobody. That, that, that is unabashedly a, a threat in one sense. And, and that might sound harsh to your ears, but think about this. That there is grace in this statement of our Lord here. There absolutely is because it's a warning to the wicked before it's too late. It's also an invitation. It's a summons to draw near to God from this moment forward, to, to be the one that he speaks of in verse 23 here, right? Which is our last verse, and says this: when he says, The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To so the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Remember, God prescribed the sacrificial system because he knew the law was impossible for sinners to keep perfectly. He provides another way. And you see, the, the law has always, always driven God's people to the absolute end of themselves and thus driven them to, to these blood sacrifices as an actual means of grace. And while those sacrifices could never save, they did prepare the way for the sacrifice. Uh, for They did prepare the way for, for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. His blood, His perfect blood could and does truly and eternally redeem us. It can do what the animal blood never could. See, when we have received faith in Christ, our, our hearts are changed. Our, our hearts, aware of this indelible grace of God, become gushing springs of, of thankful worship to our triune God. And so, Christian, Psalm 50, hear this Psalm 50 calls you and I to consider our own lives. Have we fallen into empty formalism where we are simply going through the motions of worship? Have we fallen into hypocrisy, right, and antinomianism, just, just pretending to love God with our words while, while disregarding His ways and disregarding Him and every other aspect of our life? And Psalm 50 serves to graciously call us back to the Lord, to a life that honors God as God, to a life that that is characterized by thankfulness to the Lord, and a life that seeks to submit our ways to God's ways. And the last thing it does is it reminds us that God is for you. He's for you. These aren't empty rules that are just thrown out there, and good luck, and we'll see how it turns out. His laws are for your good. He's made himself knowable for your good. He calls you out of your sin. He calls you to Christ. He calls you to walk in his ways for your good. God is for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is none like you you rule over all rulers you reign over all authority the holy spirit work in our hearts that we would not wickedly use our tongues to speak evil or our hands to do evil or our minds to think evil but would both in heart and in speech and action be a people who are thankful to you lord who bring to you the gratitude of our hearts for the redemption of our souls which you have accomplished O Lord, keep us from empty formalism and wicked hypocrisy. This we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen.